the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I am Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have Dr. Peter Grinspoon on the show. He is a physician. He comes from a family of cannabis activists. I'm sure you've all heard of him. He also has this great new book called Seeing Through the Smoke, which I really suggest you pick up. It is a really great read, a lot of information and a lot of things that, you know, especially for those of us that are in the movement in the industry have been having lots of conversations about. Um, so really check it out. And we're going to dig into that today. Peter, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for, for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. So first question, what was your first cannabis experience? My first cannabis experience was related to the fact that my brother Danny was fighting an unsuccessful battle with childhood leukemia. And he was been so he was so sick from the chemotherapy. And in the early 1970s, my parents illegally bought him cannabis because they had heard that it helps with the ravages of chemotherapy. So, you know, this is right when Nixon was starting his war on drugs, uh, when my brother Danny was not using cannabis, he would just be lying in his bed, throwing up into a bucket next to his bed. When he used cannabis, he could eat, he could hold, maintain his weight, hold down food, he strum on his Fender or Stratocaster, which he loved doing. And most importantly to me as a younger brother, like eight years old, play with his little brothers. Like, you know, when you're boisterous little brothers and you're in chemotherapy, you don't feel very well, but with the cannabis, he could play with us. So I came to associate the smell of cannabis with healing and with sort of improved quality of life of somebody that was suffering. And that stuck with me throughout medical school where we were taught a lot of nonsense about cannabis through a career in medicine where we were taught a lot of nonsense about cannabis. I always knew on sub-level that cannabis was a medicine. Now, I'm I'm thinking about two things when you mentioned that. One, chemotherapy was a lot stronger and gnar- much more gnarly then than it is now. Not that it's not now, but then it was way worse. And then secondly, was this when your father started getting interested in using or in having the conversations about the medicinal use of cannabis? Well, I think my dad got interested a few years earlier. It's really interesting. He he wrote that he went to write his book, Marijuana Reconsidered. He originally was sort of against cannabis because that's what the only thing they taught psychiatrists and doctors, like the, the, the bad for you. Um, and it couldn't possibly have any benefit. But when my dad, my dad has a lot of intellectual integrity. And when he did a extremely deep dive into the literature, he realized that cannabis does have some potential harms. We don't know that it's safe in pregnancy and breastfeeding. It could destabilize people with psychosis. It's certainly not necessarily safe for teens. But he came to the conclusion that the criminalization of cannabis was far, far, far more detrimental than the use of cannabis. So in 1971, again, in his book, Marijuana Reconsidered, he came out calling for legalization of cannabis. And that was a very brave thing to do because in 1971, only 12% of American adults supported legalization of cannabis. It was definitely a minority opinion. My dad, as always, was way ahead of his time. The support for legalization went up about a point for each of the 50 years that my dad worked on it. So now it's about two thirds of people support full legalization. But uh, my dad's book did very well. It was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review and it was like a bestseller. At the same time, he got sort of tortured by Harvard uh, Medical School because they did not like one of their preeminent psychiatrists calling for legalization. They are a very conservative institution. So that was related. And I think that's why my dad was open to trying cannabis for my brother, Danny. But, um, you know, a couple years before my, my brother even got sick, I think my dad first got interested in studying cannabis. It's I, the work that you've done and your father has done is, is just so important. I, for myself, I always enjoyed cannabis, but I never approached it medicinally until I was in my late thirties and had stage three colon cancer. And my mom being a, a clinical researcher and a hematology oncology nurse. She'll tell you that she didn't tell me to use cannabis, but that THC was useful for nausea. <laughs> but it did. It 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 helped with a lot of things because I had to use things like opiates and anti-nausea drugs, which 
you know, create constipation. And as a colon cancer patient, that could have killed me. So I was really relieved to be able to forego some of the pharmaceuticals that I would have had to have used otherwise. Um, I think that when we're talking about cannabis and when people really dig into the issues around legalization and medicinal use and the effects on the body, it also is, when we look at it from like a macro-micro thing, it's, it's a call to critical thought. And one of the things that I've always really enjoyed about what I've been following you through the years and your work is the fact that you have a very, your approach with it, your perspective as a physician and as an advocate is not all of, it's all great, it's a panacea, or it's all horrible. You have a very balanced view on that. And I think we need to have more conversations about that. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, it's really important to me to be to be balanced. And, you know, the people who are against cannabis are really close-minded. And, you know, a lot of the physician groups like the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association still put the words medical marijuana and these derogatory quotation marks and they don't treat people with cannabis and they don't read it about any of the benefits. They're just in this like bubble chamber where it's all this satanic weed. And it's really unfortunate because we've been deferring to the psychiatrists about cannabis. My theory is that they don't know very much about it at all because they just get this negative perspective and they don't treat people. I think the anti people need to be much more humble and open to the benefits. I mean, there's a reason why 94% of Americans support legal access to medical marijuana. It works. And like, I can't imagine that these people, these quote unquote experts who have never tried it and have never treated anybody. I, I, I can't understand why they're so close-minded about it. At the same time, a lot of the cannabis proponents think that every study about harm is just US government propaganda. Now, there is a boy who cried wolf phenomenon because there've been decades of US government propaganda against cannabis. And most of the research that the US government has done has been looking for harms and not for benefits. So we have this really sort of tainted, like biased research base trying to show harms against cannabis. But at the same time, like the research is better now and more and different people are doing research. And if you're a cannabis user or a cannabis proponent, you should want to know about the harms. Like I'm not a big drinker, but of a, a, a beer at a barbecue, I know what's good about alcohol. I know what's bad about alcohol. I'm making an informed choice. And Nothing is completely free of harms. No medicine, no drug is completely, there's no free lunch in the world of medicine. So I just think the people who are pro-cannabis should be much more curious about potential harms because they don't want to hurt themselves. And there's no reason to idealize cannabis. It really helps tons of people with tons of things, but it also is a medicine and a drug that has as good sides as bad sides that could be used helpfully, that could be used unhelpfully. So I think both sides could make a lot of progress with a little bit of humility. Absolutely. And and a lot of critical thought. I mean, there's, when we look at, I, in the past, like when I, over a decade ago, when I started working in cannabis, a lot of the research tended to be rat models. And one of the things that I realized then was that it was male rat models too. So how is that, you know, men and women metabolize cannabis differently, especially with women's estrogen levels. So it's really wonderful to start seeing more human trials coming out. And then going back to what you were saying about psychiatrists, I noticed that you'd put in a quote from Dr. DuPont. <laughs> and then, of course, I was like furiously trying to research to see like if what part of the DuPont family he came from, but I couldn't figure out. He made a fortune on drug testing and he was the first head of NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and he doesn't have reefer madness. He has full-blown reefer psychosis. But unfortunately, he was very influential with the American Psychiatric Association and the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which is part of why these organizations have been so off base on cannabis. Uh, the American Society of Addiction Medicine recently has gotten a little bit better and they stand for decriminalization at least. But um, really, there was very little distance between U.S. government propaganda and what all the psychiatrists were thinking and saying about cannabis for many, many decades. And it it just makes it all the more amazing that my dad, a prominent psychiatrist, could, as it were, see through the smoke and, and really figure out what's what and go against the grain, regardless of what personal consequences there were. And um, But it also, you know, my, my chapter on doctors in cannabis is called do be no harm. And there's a whole chapter about like why and how 
the doctors who were on the wrong side of the war on drugs and how they didn't or couldn't think for themselves like my dad did and how they were very sheep-like in terms of all the political pressures that they were under and how they were complicit in this war on cannabis users where we've put we've arrested 20 million people mostly with black and brown skin for nonviolent cannabis offenses and the ways I talk about the ways in which these arrests can harm your educational prospects, your student loans, your housing, mm-hmm. your employment, uh, your 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 socioeconomic status, you could lose your kids. It's really awful what the war on cannabis users has done to people. And and it just amazes me that doctors were like flat out on the wrong side of it. I think we have a lot of uh, sort of atonement or apologizing to do. And there are still physicians that are actively against it. I mean, just, you know, 12 years ago, my my oncologist had no problem with me getting a medical recommendation for cannabis, but he had to refrain from giving it to me because the um, the head of his practice was actively against it. So I had to talk my gastroenterologist through the process because she'd never written a recommendation before. And then later on, I noticed because I was working in a medical cannabis dispensary, that the head of that practice that I had been working with before had changed his tune and I was actually seeing recommendations coming in from him. But even then, getting recommendations from physicians and then having to call for verification was always very tricky because they didn't want to be on the record for it. And now well, we're worried about being persecuted. Yeah. You know, you just look at when Proposition 215 um, was legal, it came about in California in 2016. 20- in 1996, the Clinton administration, Barry McCaffrey, the head of the, you know, the drugs are, they were trying to put doctors in prison for writing cannabis prescriptions. And it still is federally illegal. You know, it's interesting. I read a lot about this in my book, but what a particular type of doctor, of course, all doctors are individuals, but generally speaking, their vantage point onto uh, cannabis really affects what they think about it. So for example, the oncologists tend to be very pro who would be an oncologist and be against medical marijuana? Like they see it helping their patients with their weight, with their appetite, with their sleep, with their pain, with their anxiety, with their nausea, something like 90% of oncologists support medical marijuana. At the other side of the spectrum is like the pediatric psychiatrists who see the rare but genuinely distressing cases of where cannabis, along with a bunch of other things, steroids, psychostimulants, psychedelics, um, alcohol, tobacco, can help trigger psychotic episodes. And then they tend to overgeneralize and think cannabis is bad for everybody. So I think it really depends on your vantage point. And then for doctors in general, it's a real paradigm shift with the medical marijuana. With other drugs, if you have high blood pressure, I'm like, take 10 of Lipitor and I'll check it again next month. Or if you have high cholesterol, here's 10 of, you know, five milligrams of this and I'll check it again. And with cannabis, it's more iterative. We make some suggestions and the person tries one thing they try another thing. It's really a paradigm shift for doctors. So combine that with the fact that doctors haven't been taught anything about the endocannabinoid system. A lot of what they've been taught has been fluffed up nonsense about the harms, many of which contain a kernel of truth. They're not completely fabricated and that they're not taught about any of the benefits or about any of the nuts and bolts. A lot of doctors are very intimidated by cannabis and they're hungry for better information, but they're just not getting it or they're getting it very, very slowly. Yeah, that that's so true. I mean, that's living in the the bubble of the Bay Area that I do. Uh, when I was the head of education for the dispensary that I worked for, I would often, a couple times a year, I would get the folks from palliative care at UCSF coming in with their pharmacology students. And the biggest thing that the pharmacology students would do was like, throw different things at me and be like, tell me, tell me the dosage and the ratio for treating someone with this or with this or with this. And I would say, well, you know, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way with your pharmaceuticals. Like you have to figure out what works well for somebody and you have a starting point. That's, that's what we do with cannabis. Our goal is to find the ideal ratio at the lowest volume that creates a desired reaction in the body. And everybody's different. So it makes it a little bit harder. Yeah, people really react differently to cannabis. Some people, you give them a milligram or two, it helps with their anxiety. Other people can use a lot more for their anxiety. It, everybody, it's so personalized. It is. And, you know, it, that's that's what I always try to tell people in my classes. If you read a great book, you look at research, you know, you go to a class, what you're getting back is a report back on how the majority 
of human beings have reported back responding to cannabis. But with the thousands of people that I've worked with, I've had four people who had highly uncomfortable psychoactive experiences with high ratios of CBD to THC. And we're talking like 30 to 1, which should be non-euphoric for most of us. Or the fact that we should talk about some people are sensitive to CBD. They can get a general malaise. They can get anxious. And then let's not forget about the cytochrome P450 interaction. And that's one thing that I always tell people, you know, you always need to talk to your doctors about your cannabis use so they get a full picture. And even if they don't know a lot about it, they understand if you say cytochrome P450, they know what they're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge, huge advocate, as you can tell from reading my book, Seeing Through the Smoke, of open communication between doctors and patients. Now, a lot of patients are afraid to mention their cannabis use to their doctors because of decades of snide, judgmental, stigmatized dismissal. Right. Uh, and I think the doctors have to do a much, much better job even if they're anti-cannabis, of creating a climate where patients can talk about what they're using. This is true for all drugs, not for cannabis. I mean, it kills people when patients don't feel like they could speak up about their benzo use, their opiate use, their recreational drug use. So doctors have to do a much better job. At the same time, patients have to advocate for themselves. And even if your doctor is sort of stuffy and has OFS, the dreaded OFS, which I coined in my book, old fart syndrome, and just isn't very (laughs) comfortable talking about it, you have to let them know because, uh, you know, their medication interactions and their anesthesia requirements. If you use cannabis heavily every day, you have higher requirements for anesthesia if you go under surgery. Now, that's not a big deal, but it's a bigger deal if the anesthesiologist doesn't know about it. If they know about it, they accommodate for it. So huge believer in open communication between doctor and patient, even if it's difficult, um, really, really important. Yeah. And doctors are, you know, they're catching things, they're picking up on stuff that other people may not. Like back in, I think it was like 2013, one of my best friends who I've known since childhood, she's, um, she's a general practitioner in Colorado. And she was actually working, I think she was doing some locum work in the ER for a while. So she called me and she's like, I'm seeing something really weird. And I want to know what your thoughts are. I'm seeing young men coming in with cyclical vomiting. That isn't the only thing that's helping them are hot showers. And the only thing they have in common is that they consume large amounts of cannabis. Have you seen this? And I hadn't at that time. And she's like, you know, I I don't know what to make of it, but I'm seeing patterns. And if you hear of anything like this, will you let me know? I mean, you know, that's a, that is a not uncommon side effect of cannabis use. It's really interesting. Like cannabis helps alleviate nausea in most people, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like a paradoxical reaction. If you overstimulate, I guess it's a TRP1 receptor, you can get a paradoxical reaction. Just like Benadryl makes most people sleepy, but it'll make some people like wide awake. They'll have a paradoxical reaction and it can make people vomit uncontrollably. Now, it is impossible to distinguish cyclical vomiting syndrome from cannabis hyperemesis syndrome unless you stop using cannabis for three to six months. If you stop using cannabis and the problem goes away, it was cannabis hyperemesis. If you stop using cannabis and six months later, you're still spending two or three nights overnight in the ER barfing your brains out, it was cyclic vomiting syndrome. There's no cannabis involved. You know, I've had patients with this And I've asked them to just stop using cannabis for three months so we could figure this out. It's really important to figure out. And, you know, some people can't even stop for three months. So I I think it's really true that some people do get addicted to cannabis. That's my definition of addiction is continued use despite negative consequences. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the rates of cannabis addiction have been so fluffed up by the psychiatrists and the war on drugs. They have these criteria that include tolerance and withdrawal. And if you just have tolerance and withdrawal, you get cannabis use disorder. But everybody who uses cannabis medicinally has tolerance and withdrawal. We have tolerance and withdrawal with our benzodiazepines, with our opiates. We don't use tolerance and withdrawal in the definition of who's addicted to opiates or to benzodiazepines because all the medical patients would get roped in. And why rope in all the medical patients? But because of a hangover from the war on drugs, we still include cravings and tolerance and withdrawal in our definitions of cannabis use disorder. And that's how they exaggerate. And and, and then this goes back to people not believing about the harms. I mean, they, the government lied about this. 
I even have people saying the government lied about cannabis. Why should I get a COVID vaccine? It's like, <sighs> once you lose credibility, it's really hard to get it back. So I think we need to sort of dismantle all this like hangover from the war on drugs, such as the completely inflated definition of cannabis use disorder and come up with a, a more accurate definition that on the one hand, doesn't rope in unnecessarily all the medical patients. You really harm someone when you give them a de definition of addiction, a diagnosis when they don't have addiction, they get treated with stigma. They don't get given pain medications by doctors. This has been shown over and over and over again. At the same time, the per smaller percentage of people who genuinely do get addicted to cannabis need to be treated with empathy and with skills. So we need to really come up with a much better diagnosis. I have some suggestions in my book for how we could go about doing this, but our definitions currently are failing us. They are. They are. And it seems like we like we've been talking about this whole time. It's either going in one direction or another. And really having having observation without judgment is a huge part of it. I mean, that's it's it's like what I always will tell people, you know, even though we create our own endogenous cannabinoids, not all of us tolerate phytocannabinoids. And the most important message around that is, and that's okay. And that doesn't mean that other people shouldn't have access to it. It just means you don't need it and you need to look at other alternatives or other things to do. But not having conversations about that and not having conversations about bad relationships with cannabis really does us a disservice because then we create greater stigma by avoiding these conversations. And then if somebody who has a larger voice experiences this, then that just becomes the message. It's almost our Tylenol moment in cannabis. We have to be really balanced with our conversations around it. Even like when I remember once when I was in a dispensary, well, I was working in the dispensary and this gentleman came up and he had a syringe of fecal oil, slams it on the table, looks at me, says, I used cannabis to get off of hard drugs and now this isn't helping me. And I looked at him and I said, well, I, I don't have the tools to help you with this. But what I can say is that cannabis is not going to fill any holes that you have. What do you, who do you need to talk to? What kind of support do you need to help you through this situation? Because, you know, we need to, it, it isn't about shaming somebody or making somebody feel like they're weak. It's about giving them the support that they need to recover or, or, or create some semblance of balance for themselves. But and, and, I, and I really would be interested in what you think about this. But when we look at harm reduction and bad relationships with substances, I think one of the hardest things for people in recovering and coming back into their best selves is the pressure from other people and the shame around the relationship with the substance and making them feel like they failed and being hopeless. No, absolutely. I mean, I unfortunately know a lot about addiction and recovery because I'm 15 years in recovery from opiate addiction. That's what my first book was about. It was called Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. And I got this horrible addiction, like life-threatening addiction to prescription opiates. I actually lost my medical license for three and a half years wow. and then worked and got it back and then worked to help other doctors uh, get over their addiction. So I've come full circle in the addiction thing. And, you know, recovery from addiction, drugs can really help. Um, particularly if you're addicted to opiates, Suboxone and Methadone, there's really good data that they have a 50 to 80% reduction in overdoses and deaths, which is really amazing, which is why I don't necessarily use cannabis to treat someone with opiate addiction. I use Suboxone because you have to go where the data is. We just don't have that data with cannabis yet. But I certainly use cannabis as an adjunct in treating people with all kinds of addictions. It helps with opiate addiction, helps with the pain, with the anxiety, with the insomnia, with opiate addiction, it really, really helps with the withdrawal symptoms. I, I've withdrawn from opiates dozens of times trying to get clean 15 years ago, and nothing was nearly as helpful as cannabis. I mean, they give you clonidine, which just slows your heart rate down a little bit. It doesn't do anything for the soul-crushing withdrawal symptoms. Cannabis really helps. So, you know, it's just so ironic that it was a talking point of the war on drugs, that cannabis was a gateway to harder drugs, which never turned out to be true. There was never any evidence for that. That was just a great big nothing burger of the war on drugs. But um, cannabis increasingly is looking like a very helpful gateway off of addiction for many people. I've had success getting people off alcohol with cannabis. I've met thousands of people that have got off opiates uh, using cannabis. I just don't use that as a primary treatment. And, um, you know, the whole addiction 
recovery world has been so dominated by Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps. And they have just this dogmatic, like abstinence for life, which has no scientific basis behind it whatsoever. And, you know, they shame people. You're on Suboxone. You're not really in recovery because that's replacing a drug with a drug. And I think we need to just throw that whole paradigm out and like forget that we ever knew it and really have a much bigger recovery tent, which includes people on methadone, which includes people on Suboxone, which includes people that are using these phenomenally exciting new psychedelics, well, old psychedelics, newly proven to be effective. Um, my dad wrote a book on psychedelics too and got in trouble for that in 1979, <laughs> calling for the use of psychedelics in psychiatry. He was way ahead of his time. Um, but, and you know, people using cannabis should be welcomed at recovery. An important part of recovery from addiction is pure support, but it doesn't have to be this 12-step nonsense, which is very religious, mm -hmm. very Christian, it can be very alien, nothing against Christians, but it can be very alienating to people, very dogmatic. You just sit in a room and repeat platitudes. I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I have friends that benefit from 12-step programs, and I wouldn't want to take them away from everybody because, you know, they work for a very small subset of people. 12-step programs are life-saving, so I don't want to take them away, but that shouldn't be what most people who are struggling to recover from addiction, get exposed to that nonsense and that dogma. We need to have a very broad recovery tent and meet people where they are so they feel welcome. So I had a recent piece, I think it was in Stat Magazine, in defense of Cali Sober, which was basically, he was in defense of Suboxone and Methadone and psychedelics and cannabis and just saying, we don't need to stick with the dogma of the past. We need to follow the science and again, meet people where, where they are. This will save lives. Yeah, what well, I had a, um there was a a friend of mine who I met through her being a medical patient coming into the dispensary and she was she had been in I think she had been sober for many years and had used a 12-step program, but she had started a group for people who had been in a 12-step program and also used cannabis as, as a support group. And I was like, you're tons yes. of people. It's tons of people. Yeah. And they're doing really well. They, by and large, you're doing really, really, really well. The psychiatrists completely miss this. They're, it's completely invisible to them. But I like people are doing so well. And it's harm reduction because, you know, in a perfect world, We'd all like, whatever, exercise, do, tofu, do yoga, eat tofu. No one would need anything. But in reality, most people or many people need something at the end of the day. And cannabis is so much more helpful and less harmful than these other substances. Right. Well, I, I noticed like my friends who've been through 12-step programs, I mean, back in the day, it was like chain smoking and coffee. And hey, I'm a coffee achiever. I've got my cup here. But, <laughs> you know, it's I always wondered. I was like, so... So cigarettes instead of of drinking, that's that's well, that goes back shift. to a whole nother problem with Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step program. It's so arbitrary which are the good drugs and which are the bad drugs. Caffeine's a good drug. Hey, tobacco's a good drug, even though it kills 500,000 people a year. So we all smoke at the meetings. But cannabis is bad because that's what the psychiatrists tell us. It's so hypocritical and ridiculous. And when it comes to drugs, my dad had a great quote about illegal drugs. He said, well, the use of illegal drugs does not always make the user act irrationally. It certainly can cause the non-user to act irrationally. And we just need to like be open-minded and start from scratch because with the drug war, we've been fed so much nonsense about all of these drugs. I mean, mm -hmm. here we have alcohol, which kills like 150,000 people a year. It causes cancer if you have three or more drinks a week now with the new research. That's really supported by our society, but psilocybin, which can really help people, you know, mushrooms with treatment resistant depression and with addiction and all kinds of other maladies is still schedule one, no medical benefit, high abuse potential, neither of which is remotely true. Cannabis is still schedule one. So we need to redo our entire classification of drugs from scratch. It's all a big hangover from the war on drugs. And we need to get law enforcement out of it. Yeah. They're literally the last people who should be involved in drugs, unless someone's driving under impairment or violent. Uh, law enforcement should have nothing to do with it. They make everything worse. If a person is struggling with drugs and then they get entangled with law enforcement, their life gets worse. It never gets better. So I'm a big favor of like complete surrender in the war on drugs, completely kicking law enforcement out of this whole realm and have people who are having trouble with drugs dealt with science by scientists, by doctors, by nurses, by social workers, by public health people. 
Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, when I um when I was one of the co-chairs of the legalization task force in San Francisco, um, we had all the city family had seats as well. So SFPD was on there, and one thing that the officer that was on the task force had said was, "Our job is to uphold the law, make better laws for us to uphold." Right. No, absolutely. Like I've met policemen that like. The last thing they want to do is like be pestering people for cannabis. Like their friends use cannabis. They believe it's a medicine and it gives them sort of a moral injury when they have to do something this really clearly unethical. And this whole war on cannabis users, which again, I go into a great detail. They used to subpoena the records of, of the, you know, gardening shops and then just raid people. They raided a lot of people that weren't even growing cannabis. They traumatized everybody. Operation Constant Gardener was a disaster. Uh, we really have a lot to answer for, and we have a lot of work to do beyond just legalizing cannabis. We need to expunge the records, and we need to mm-hmm. funnel some of the profits from this new industry into the neighborhoods and the communities that have been just decimated uh, by the war on drugs. We, we we have a lot of work to do. We do. We do. And that's that's one thing from the industry side that I've always been really involved and concerned about like when we would talk about legalization coming to California before we passed it on the 2016 ballot which that election I was just like the way everything else turned out I was like I'll give it all back if we can like have a do-over let's do this (laughs) we can get legalization without having the person in the White House that we just voted in please but you know it's it was you know when we're talking about like having ease of entry into the industry and social equity and really having the conversation, hey, you're talking about the illicit market, but these are entrepreneurs. How do we get them into the legal market in a way that supports them, that's, you know, doesn't, that they're able to be prosperous, it creates generational wealth, and it gets things like, you know, it puts the cartels out of business, Let's let's really look at that. And people would look at me like I was crazy. I was like, well, you know, they're doing the same work that we're doing legally. Yeah, no, you're ahead of the curve. And these are the people providing medicine to patients like bravely uh, during prohibition. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's really important to find a way to include everybody in an equitable way. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's just like another industry that capitalism takes over and like uses to exploit people. I mean, you want to hope and believe that cannabis is different. You want to believe that. And and I think that cannabis was a model and an opportunity to change the way we do business across the board. Like when we were in the 215 days medicinal cannabis, we had, there were community agreements where we did things to support the community. We put money back in. And I think if we could look at it through that lens and instead of creating all these crazy sin taxes that make it so expensive for people to buy their cannabis, so they do turn to the traditional market to purchase. And then the state's like, where's my money? It's like, we could be fixing a lot of this with, you know, just changing the models. Um I wanted to talk to you about teens and cannabis. When last fall, it was actually around this time, I did an interview with David Crosby and I had some listeners send in questions. And one of the questions, and it was from a mutual friend of ours, Mara Gordon, um, she asked, how do you talk to kids or teens about cannabis? And his response was, tell them the truth. I agree. Uh, Tell them the truth. I mean, we know what happens when you don't tell them the truth. The D.A.R.E. program, all it did is destroy the credibility of adults and police officers and authority figures because they vastly exaggerated the harms of cannabis. Uh, Teenagers are smart. They experimented with cannabis. They saw that none of the horrible things were happening. And then they lost the message and all the other more dangerous drugs like alcohol and heroin. Um, So we know that lying to teens backfires. It's not that it doesn't work. It actually backfires. Once you've lost your credibility with a teenager, good luck getting it back. (laughs) You're like, maybe wait till they're in their thirties and then you can talk to them again. Um, And you know, what we say to teens is just say, wait, it, it, it it is fun. People like using cannabis. It's like, they like using alcohol. We don't pretend that it's not fun. It's not like promoting drug use to tell the truth about it, but 
it can harm the teenage brain. Now, the I would have to say the data is not definitive, but it's very suggestive. Uh, a, very, a lot of contradictory studies. One study will show a thinned out prefrontal cortex in teens that have used cannabis. Other studies will show no difference whatsoever. So the data is somewhat, contra somewhat contradictory, but I think there's enough concerning data and just our understanding of how the teen brain forms, it's not good for it to flood it with a lot of external cannabinoids when it's trying to develop its own natural harmonious endocannabinoid system. Now, there are certain exceptions. If you're my brother, Danny, you're dying of cancer, let the kid smoke cannabis. If right. you're autistic, you know, the psychiatrists, the pediatricians are just like, absolutely not. CBD is bad for kids. THC is bad for kids. And then you look at how they're treating these kids with autism and they're like bombarding them with like Adderall and Haldol and Thorazine and Lorazepam. And it's like, how are you going to argue that CBD with a little bit of THC is worse for a kid or a teen than Haldol, than these major heavy duty neuroleptics and psychostimulants and sedatives? It's just this presumption of negativity that the medical establishment has to get over. And when you're a doctor, you have to say, what is the least harmful option? And there's really interesting, not again, not definitive, but interesting data about how cannabis can I have a whole chapter about this in my book, Seeing Through the Smoke, about a chapter, how cannabis can help not only the non-core symptoms of autism, the self-injurious behavior, but the, but possibly the core symptoms by triggering the endocannabinoid system and the oxytocin symptom and the lack of eye contact and the lack of connection and the lack of language it could, in people who are pretty severely autistic, cannabis might be able to help with all of that. And I, I just don't get how the pediatricians and the psychiatrists are like, sure, let's bombard them with Adderall and Thorazine, but they're, they're, they're so against CBD, which is an approved medication for childhood epilepsy, perhaps with a little bit like one or two milligrams of THC mixed in. It's really missing the forest for the trees and not thinking for yourself. Not to be critical, but I just think they're completely missing the boat. So to get back to your original question, we say just say wait to teenagers, but certainly if someone's a medicinal cannabis patient, and then, you know, you don't want teenagers medicating away their mood with cannabis. I mean, I think yeah. teenagers, if anything, are more susceptible than adults to getting addicted to cannabis or to other drugs because they're bored, they're angry, they're lonely, they don't have good distress tolerance. They take a puff. They feel better. They don't learn how to self-soothe, how to ask someone for help, how to talk about their feelings. So you don't really want teenagers modulating their mood with, with cannabis. You want them to just say, wait. But I've seen a couple cases where like none of the antidepressants have worked on teenagers and cannabis really does help them. So all rules have exceptions. So again, just say, wait for teenagers. Tell them the truth. Don't lie about it or you're utterly screwed with no credibility but also there are some credible medical exceptions where cannabis might be the lesser of two evils. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know like growing up, you know, as a, as a, as a kid in, you know, the, well, I was a teenager in the eighties and you told me not to do something and made it scary. I was like, Ooh, let's check it out. Let's get more fun. Yeah. But now yeah. people are seeing grandma on the couch taking a puff twice a day of her medicinal marijuana, and it's just less cool. It so, is. I mean, that's one of the theories why the rates have been going, teenage rates have been stable or dropping since legalization, which isn't what, you know, at least the prohibitionists had had predicted. Right, right. Yeah, it, the more information we put out there and the more normalized it becomes, the less cool it is. And that's that's when you that's when you lose the teens and they're like, well, whatever. Like my my mom smokes that. I don't want to. It'd be like it's like drinking White Claw. <laughs> Not cool. <laughs> White Claw is kind of disgusting, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's not. So, I've, I've actually never tried. It's bitter and nasty. Is it? Yeah, I for me personally, like I um I used to enjoy alcohol a lot more, but then during chemo, it's not that I couldn't have it, it's just it's not appealing. You know, and then afterwards I just would much prefer to unwind just having a smoke or a, a light. Well, you edible. and millions of other people. This is why the alcohol industry was against legalization, why in every single ballot initiative, the alcohol industry was like, oh, look how dangerous cannabis is because they're losing market share. I mean, some people are law-abiding. That was never really my modus operandi growing up, but a lot of people are, are law-abiding. And I, part of it was the D.A.R.E. program made me realize that the I destroyed my trust in authority figures. So I part of it was, but 
you know, and now that people have a legal choice between alcohol and cannabis, I think a lot of people are going to realize cannabis doesn't make you hungover or doesn't impair you as much. It, it's more interesting. It's more useful. It can help you connect with people. It's not fattening, doesn't cause cancer. I think that um, a lot of people are going to be shifting to cannabis once they have a legal, legitimate choice between the two. I mean, one one industry, what cannabis has been like lied about and tainted and stigmatized and propagandized against and alcohol has been advertised. And But in reality, I mean, a lot of people are just going to be saying, which is the better, which is the more helpful substance? Right. And and for women, and this is something I learned later in life, it's like you drink one day and the next day your rings barely fit your fingers. You yeah. cannabis doesn't do that. Yeah. And it, you don't feel good the next day after drinking. You know, cannabis, yeah. if you use a ton into the wee hours of the morning, sure, you're sort of hungover, but Generally speaking, cannabis doesn't cause much of a hangover the next day. Yeah, that's it. And, and I think that, you know, having the conversations too, especially here in the Bay, you know, people will come into town and a lot, there's cannabis tourism and they're like, oh, we want to pick something up because then we're going to go to Napa and do some wine tasting. I'm like, all right, hold up right there. How are you mixing those two and what's your experience with each of them? Because getting crossfaded is a miserable experience, especially if you're in an area that you're not familiar with and you have to get somewhere with a vehicle. So you're stuck. Well, also the dose and the edibles. A lot of people are like newbies yeah, and they don't realize that a starting dose is like two and a half to five milligrams and they get upsold by some bud tender. Here are some great 50 milligram edibles that are on sale. They take them and they freak out. I mean, really the start low and go slow isn't just for medical patients. It's for all new cannabis users. You want to start with a very, very low dose, probably a dose that won't do anything. And then the next time take a little bit more and then a little bit more. You don't want to, it's a, nobody dies. There's no way to fatally overdose from cannabis, but it is a miserable experience. If you take more cannabis than you intended, it could be very anxiety provoking, very unsettling. So you really want to pay close attention to the dosage. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's that's actually one thing that I've been talking a lot about. I I'm the um, I'm the chair of the medicinal use subcommittee for the state, and we've had in public comment physicians coming on line and saying, you know, don't don't stress financially stress out dispensaries by requiring that they educate their staff because that's not their job. They're not healthcare practitioners. And then I get really upset because I'm like, no, they're not. But you can train people to help people navigate through the modes of use and dosage without giving medical advice because we need to make sure people have safe, successful outcomes. And to say, I agree with you completely. I there needs to be training, bud tenders to do no fault of their own. In fact, in part, because the doctors don't know anything about cannabis. So people go to the bud tenders for information, get put in a position of like coming very close to giving medical advice. And I think bud tenders absolutely need training like we all do, but bud tenders in particular, because they're public facing and people are asking medical questions about what is what they can't should be talking about what they shouldn't be talking about when they should say talk to your doctor i, I think that would save lives I, I mean not save lives but it would save a lot of misery because um you know there's just a wide range of people out there i can say as being a primary care doctor for 25 years i think it's fair to say some people have more common sense than other people <laughs> and like you know if you're dealing with the public at large you really want some basic minimum training so that they know what to say and what not to say so they don't end up harming somebody. Right, right. And with the common sense comes like <laughs> with legalization was almost like stoner civics 101 lessons. I mean, the fact that when we passed legalization here, people were coming to the dispenser and mad that they couldn't come in without a recommendation. And it's like, honey, we, we pass it, then we build the foundation. That's what happens. Or when we were in legalization, oh, it's legal now. Why do I have to think about dosage? Well, just because something's legal doesn't mean you can use as much as you want and not have repercussions. Right. If it's legal, that means it's time to focus on harm reduction. Yeah. Unless they ever come up with a substance that has no harms to anybody, which they never will. No, they won't because we're walking chemistry experiments. And I mean, peanut butter kills some people. Oh, I could kill people with penicillin treating their strep throat. I, I don't know they're allergic. Yeah. They don't know they're allergic if they've never taken penicillin. I mean, it's all about using the least dangerous alternative. Usually they don't die from taking penicillin, but you know, I, I people with a 
history or family history of psychosis have to be extremely careful with cannabis. A pregnant breastfeeding woman, you know, if they're suffering from chronic pain or anxiety, they need to take something. Uh, they can't just can't just ignore their suffering. But at the same time, we just don't know how safe or unsafe cannabis is during pregnancy. And we, you know, very cautious as a primary care doctor using anything during pregnancy, even ibuprofen can cause birth defects. Right. Um, you know, teenagers, as we talked about, it, it may very well harm their developing brains. It's not going to be like major harm. They're like crack baby. They're never turned out to be crack babies. That was all another nothing burger of the drug war. But there is fetal alcohol syndrome. Cannabis does not cause harm like that. I mean, I started smoking at age 13 and I, you know, maybe who knows, maybe I would have been a neurosurgeon instead of a lowly primary care doctor if I didn't smoke cannabis starting at age 13. But I don't think it it really harmed me. But we, we've we learned a lot since then and we want teens to be careful. But again, you know, pregnant, breastfeeding, not before driving, teenagers, history, family history, psychosis. These are the categories where you want to be very, very, very careful using cannabis, if using it at all. And again, you know, there are certain proponents that think, you know, it's good for everybody. And it's it's just not good for everybody. It's 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 like anything else. It's a tool that could be used well or could be used poorly. Right. It's funny. You were mentioning the pregnancy yesterday. I actually did. Um, I met with a research coordinator from USC talking about pregnancy and cannabis. And she was asking me about if uh, pregnant mothers that would come into the dispensary. And of course, it's been a while since I've been working uh, behind the bar in a dispensary. But she was asking, you know, what I saw, what people, how we treated it and things like that. And the one thing I mentioned to her, I said, if somebody's coming in, the first question that a lot of people would ask me is they'd pull me aside and say, will I be judged if I come in and purchase? And I always made sure that that wasn't the case. But did I make recommendations about products? I always, always wanted people to talk to their physician before purchasing anything, especially, you know, I mean, but then there's also like my grandmother had a pharmaceutical when she was pregnant with my aunt, then the repercussions were that my aunt couldn't have children then when her time gives. So, you know, it's the least toxic alternative. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. In my book, I have a whole chapter in cannabis and pregnancy. And I talk about one study where the doctors pretended to be a pregnant woman and called the dispensaries and got all these recommendations. The doctors, it was crazy what percentage of the dispensaries gave recommendations. Sure, you're pregnant. Come on in, use cannabis without any warning, without any medical, not any, you know, you should talk to your doctor. And mm-hmm. the doctors, tisk, tisk, isn't that awful? But then there was a, another study that I talked about where like people actually talked to their doctor about being pregnant and using cannabis. And the doctors were like, you better not mention that to me or I'm going to have to call DSS. Like nothing good came. There's no advice. Nothing good came out of talking to their doctors when they were pregnant. So the doctors were really shocked and mortified that people would talk to the bud tenders. But then they did a, studies of when people talked to their doctors and it really ended up very poorly. So again, we need to figure this out. We don't criminalize people who are pregnant who use drugs. We don't taint, stigmatize, or judge them because they'll just go underground. They won't get help. We'll never hear from them again. But we do clearly understand the potential risks as well as the benefits. Talk to people openly, a two-way conversation, and let them know what what we think and let them know what a, what the safest path forward is and give them options. That's the best we can do. Right. And then there's also the stigma of policy. Like I had a colleague, a young woman that I worked with in the dispensary who was a woman of color who was pregnant and she and she was dealing with horrible nausea, but she and she was really worried about the pharmaceuticals that she was being prescribed. But on the other hand, she was very careful to not even be around anyone who was smoking cannabis because she was put on notice that she was because they knew she worked at a dispensary and she was, I'm sure it was because she was a woman of color. She was put on notice that she was going to be drug tested when she was giving birth. We should, I mean, taking away a kid is so much more harmful to the kid than using the mom using cannabis. It's so, it's so backwards that we do that. That should never, ever happen. Now, I think we should, deal with this situation with education and just say, look, we don't know that it's safe. Let's look at the harms and benefits of all the different possible treatments for nausea. And then you can make an informed decision. 
Right. It's not like the pharmaceutical treatments for nausea are completely safe in pregnancy either. Let's let people make informed decisions and then let's stop criminalizing them. Yeah. I I really I, I'm so glad that you wrote this book. I think that it's you you see it through such a, a critical eye, seeing both sides of it, the conversations that we need to have. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> oh yeah, we can go on for hours. Unfortunately, I gotta go in a minute, but I, 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 know. I feel like go for days, literally. So for people who want to follow you on social media, contact you, learn more about the book, how can they do that? Well, I'm very active on Twitter, just Peter underscore Grinspoon. And on my website, people can contact me. It's just petergrinspoon.com. And you spell Grinspoon, grin like smile, spoon like fork. And it's literally just petergrinspoon.com. And there's a contact me button that goes right to my regular email. So if people have questions, they want to clarify something that was said, feel free to check out on my website. And, and on my website, you can find my book or you can find it on Amazon or Barnes and Nobles. Uh, it's pretty easy to find seeing through the smoke. Awesome. Will you come back again? Because I, I, you're Absolutely. a delight. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank I'd be you. Anytime. So I'd be delighted to. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Peter. I, this is a conversation is a long time coming. I'm really excited about having you on the show and just thank you for, for all the work that you and your family have done to really help us see through the smoke. Well, you're welcome. And we all have a lot more work to do. We sure <laughs> so, do. We but sure it's a do. great time to be alive and it's a great time to be involved in cannabis. We're, we're slowly but surely winning the battle. We are. We are. Together, we can make it happen. We're making it happen. Yep. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a good day. You too. And everyone, remember, if you like listening, please... Give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com, or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care.